0: All right, everybody, it's Dan Dan here, and today we're going to go over Bill's story here in the AA Big Book. Bill's story is the story of Bill Wilson, the guy who founded AA and put these steps together and wrote that book in your hand. At least he was the guy responsible for putting the words down. Lots of people contributed to it, and he had a story just like you, just like me. Now, there's a lot of ways that people have gone about talking about Bill's story or how do we relate to it since it happened a long time ago, and it has a lot of reference to it to things that maybe you're completely unfamiliar with. And one of those ways that in my sponsorship world that we might take a look at Bill's story is by going through it and outlining or underlining or highlighting each of the words that represent an emotion to sort of identify with Bill on the basis of how we feel. And then there's another way of going through and isolating circumstances. And maybe we can identify with Bill on the basis of circumstances. For our talk today and the real focus of today, especially in this first part, because we're going to do Bill's story in three parts, we're going to talk about it in terms of commitments we are unable to keep, particularly the commitments we make to ourselves That we're not able to keep because at least for the sake of this discussion, it's believed that all of us have that problem. All of us have the problem of promising things and failing to deliver. And in that kind of lies the legacy of everything else. You know, the feelings and the circumstances that naturally follow that type of pattern bring us here today. So let's dive into Bill's story. War fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned. And we were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes, making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. I was part of life at last. And in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. I think we all had that moment, right? We have this moment that we discover liquor. We think of it as, wow, here, in fact, is God's gift to the world. Wow, I finally feel and think the way I want to feel and think, or something like that. Bill says, I forgot the strong warnings and the prejudices of my people concerning drink. In time, we sailed over there. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. We landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by a doggerel on an old tombstone. This is on the tombstone. It says, Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold small beer. A good soldier's ne'er forgot whether he dieth by musket or by pot. Ominous warning, which I failed to heed. Twenty-two in a veteran of foreign wars, I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader, For had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation, my talent for leadership, I imagined, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with the utmost assurance. How many of us have felt that way? You know, we get that relief from liquor, and it gives us a confidence that we don't normally have. It gives us this idea that we can be somebody that maybe we currently aren't. And we set out to prove that or be that. I took a night law course and obtained employment as an investigator for a surety company. The drive for success was on. I'd proved to the world I was important. So he's after success, significance, and he wants to have purpose, importance. My work took me about Wall Street, and little by little, I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some became very rich. Why not I? I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or write. Though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wife. We had long talks when I would still her forebodings by telling her that men of genius conceived their best projects when drunk, that the most majestic construction of philosophic thought We're so derived. So we're trying to be something that we're not, right? And we're trying to put it out in this world like this is how it's done. By the time I had completed the course, I knew the law was not for me. The inviting maelstrom of Wall Street had me in its grip. Business and financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that one day would turn in its flight like a boomerang and all but cut me to ribbons. Living modestly, my wife and I saved $1,000. It went into certain securities, then cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagined that they would someday have a great rise. See, we get things right just enough to believe this delusion that we're living in. Back to Bill. It says, I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and managements, but my wife and I decided to go anyway. I had developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. We gave up our positions and off we roared on a motorcycle, the sidecar stuffed with a tent, blankets, a change of clothes, and three huge volumes of a financial reference service. Our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. Perhaps they were right. I had had some success at speculation, So we had a little money, but we once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital. That was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day. We covered the whole eastern United States in a year. At the end of it, my reports to Wall Street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense account. Sounds like doom to one of us, right? (laughs) The exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year. For the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. I had arrived. That's really a key word in here because I can remember days that I thought I had arrived when I'm sitting alone in a hotel room because I had plenty of money and plenty of liquor and plenty of drugs and plenty of whatever debauchery I was going to be involved with. I thought I really had something. He's thinking that too. My judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. There was loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Everyone spent in thousands and chattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair-weathered friends. Remember your friends at the bar? Did they come bail you out of jail? (laughs) Probably not. My drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night. The remonstrances of my friends terminated in a row, and I became a lone wolf. So he's starting to isolate. There were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. That's a really kind way of saying that he was ugly and fighting and abusive to his wife that he didn't do the things that he promised to do the day he married her. One big commitment that we're gonna keep an eye on throughout this reading. There had been no real infidelity for loyalty to my wife, helped at times by extreme drunkenness, kept me out of those scrapes. In 1929, I contracted golf fever. How many people made a decision to start doing something for a living or for a hobby that just naturally involved drinking? This is what Bill did. We at once went to the country, my wife to applaud while I started out to overtake Walter Hagen, a big golfer at the time. Liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night. It was fun to caroom around the exclusive course which had inspired such awe in me as a lad. I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with amused skepticism. Abruptly, in October 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was 8 o'clock, five hours after the market closed. The ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of tape which bore the inscription XYZ-32. It had been 52 that morning. I was finished, and so were many of my friends. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. My friends had dropped several millions since 10 o'clock. So what? Tomorrow was another day. As I drank, the old fierce determination to win came back. So What? That's going to become a really important concept. And I know in my drinking, I hit that point in time where I had money and I have my wife still and I got things going on. And yeah, I'm drinking way too much. So what? Yeah, I got a DUI. So what? What business is it of yours? I didn't do anything to hurt you. I'm not doing this to bother anybody. No one's getting hurt by what I'm doing. What difference does it make? I'm not taking anything from you. It's none of your business anyway. So what? That idea just starts pouring out of us at some point in time. It's almost like we've given in to the idea that we're going to drink to survive. And, and that's just how it is. And people can either deal with it or not deal with it. And they can be in our life or out of our life on that basis. So this is where Bill's going. He's, he's just about there. He says, the next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left and thought I'd better go to Canada. By the following spring, we were living in our custom style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No St. Helena for me, but drinking caught up with me again. And my generous friend had to let me go. This time we stayed broke. So we have another broken commitment. He's obviously promised his friend to do certain things. And well, the drinking interfered with him doing those things. He was unable to keep the commitments that he made to himself. And he's made several of them as we've gone through this story. He's made a promise to be successful in the stock market. When that didn't work, he left. He made a promise to some friends to perform a certain way in a company. And when they didn't like what he had to say, he got on a motorcycle and went and did his own thing. He values his own opinion over others. He is not an open-minded person. He's a cocky, self-righteous person. And he's paying the consequences. He can't sit in one place for very long. And he's dragging his wife through all of this as well. Not the nicest thing to do. So now he's had a problem and he's going to stay broke. He goes on. We went to live with my wife's parents. So he's gone all the way from the highfalutin society of the stock market. And he's degraded down to living with his wife's parents. But he maintains that sense of pride. I found a job then lost it as a result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hanger-on at the brokerage places. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. Not at home. Not the power bill. Not give his wife some money. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Not all of us get this far. Some of us stop before them because in our modern world. People intervene. Things happen. And we have this idea of intervention out there, right? You get Dr. Phil or everybody gets together and, you know, it's still all about you, isn't it? it? And when you do something like that, it's it's really kind of feeding the alcoholic ego in a way. There's another type of intervention that I'm particularly accustomed with, and that's the kind that the sheriffs and police officers of our world do. And I got intervened on a lot, you know? So intervention's not always the Dr. Phil or the warm and fuzzy type thing. It can be getting arrested. So he says, a tumbler full of gin followed by a half dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought, I still thought I could control the situation and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. So what he's letting us on to there is that he believed he could control it, even though his life reflects it as being completely out of control. And he's making commitments to his wife repeatedly in what he's calling periods of sobriety in here, but he doesn't stay sober. And you'll hear in the rooms, people say things like, I'm good at stopping drinking, but I don't stay stopped drinking. So weigh that against your own experience, you know? Have you been able to stay stopped? That's the real question, right? Bill goes on, gradually things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Woohoo! it's on now. I can drink freely, right? I got to get all this money. Stocks were at a low point of 1932 and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender and the chance vanished. I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, lots of commitments, lots of commitments. But my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, right? We swear off. I'm never, ever going to do this again. We believe our battle is between us and alcohol or us in a set of circumstances or us in a need for money or us in a need for a job or us in a need for friends or us in a need for something, but the battle is within. It is not outside of us. It's not even with alcohols we learn later on. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? Where had it been? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder, for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. Well, here we go. We're going to make another commitment. You guys ready? Renewing my resolve. I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness, which is a state of being like overly confident. Some uh, therapy worlds might call it, and I love this word, super optimism. Super optimistic, like optimistic beyond, way beyond reality. Super optimism. I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I have what it takes. I've finally got what to, enough self-knowledge to stay sober, he's saying. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time, I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time. How many next times in the room, right? How many of you have sat there and said, man, I got to quit. I'm going to get this thing done tomorrow. I'm going to do it at New Year's. When I turn 40, when I turn 50, when I turn 35, when I get this woman, when I get this job, when I finally have this money, when I get this car, next time, what was your next time? What does your next time look like, right? So he says, as the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then. And I did. And then the, the thing that we all do, right? The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. He's giving up. My brain raced uncontrollably and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. Every once in a while, we got glimpses into our bad situation. Like, oh my gosh, I got drunk last night. I have a probation appointment today. Or dang, I missed that court date last week. You know, things like that. A lot of us have had that. I made a promise to my wife to be somewhere. In my own story, one of my DUIs occurred the day before I'm supposed to meet my wife for a very special birthday weekend in New Orleans. Right? of course, the night before I go out, before that's supposed to happen, I tie one on and get arrested, and I don't show up in New Orleans. So the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dared cross the street, lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale, My withering nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper had told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No. Not. Think about it. A lot of us have had that very moment. It's right here in Bill's story. We're not alone. It's okay to say that you've had that thought. Should I kill myself? No is the answer, not. No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that, so two bottles and oblivion. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms, for mine endured this agony for two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window, sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor, lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity. So did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking, and I was 40 pounds underweight. How many of us have been through that series of events? The more modern thing might be like I went to an outpatient treatment center. I went and got a psychologist. They put me on some medicines, and I drank anyway. They all told me not to, and I did it anyway. I ended up in jail, and they put me on some sedatives, some sort of thing for anxiety. And I drank anyway because I believed I was a bipolar person or I believed that I had anxiety disorder or I believe these things these people are telling me, but I refuse to believe that I have an alcohol problem. I reject that. I need alcohol. I can't get by without it. It's the most important thing. I will do anything you want. Don't take it away. And I can't keep any of those commitments. I can't keep them. I make them all the time at this stage in alcoholism. You and I are making all sorts of commitments that we cannot keep. Promises, failures. Promises, failures. Over and over and over again. Bill goes on. My brother-in-law is a physician, and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed at a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. This will be Towns Hospital, which we talked about in The Doctor's Opinion. Under the so-called Belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that, though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill, bodily and mentally. And that would be Dr. Silkworth talking to him about the allergy. It relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was finally explained. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer. Self-knowledge. But it was not. For the frightful day came when I drank once more. Commitment? Failure. Can't keep the commitment. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. After a time, I returned to the hospital. This was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens, or I would develop a wet brain, perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. They did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining that endless procession of sots who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity, the bitter morass. A self-pity, a morass is a soft, wet ground. It's a place where you sink. The bitter sinking of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. So we're going to stop there. The idea here is that commitments we make to ourselves cannot be kept so long as alcohol is a part of our life. That this pattern repeats itself over and over, no matter how hard we resolve to do it, no matter what the circumstances are, with self-knowledge and a desire inside of us to make all of this right, we still do not have enough to be successful in keeping off the drink. And we're going to learn in this book, in this reading, that drinking is not necessarily our problem, in any case the great discussion and the questions to ask yourself. Wouldn't it be fantastic if you had a way at which you can learn to live where you naturally kept the commitments you make to yourself and others? Do you want that style of life? And how would that look compared to when you drink? Do you keep commitments when you drink or not? And it might be a great discussion or, you know, something to talk about with a sponsor. The commitment you failed to keep. How many times did you promise to quit and didn't? How many times did you promise not to do something and did it anyway? And I think that's a really important thing for us to sit back and consider. If you're wondering if you're an alcoholic, you're not sure, this is one of the things that you can look to, a pinnacle, a principle that may well help you answer that question. I hope you guys have a great discussion.